0: Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government, for teachers, students, and citizens.
1: Welcome, everyone, uh, to this month's uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar which is of course sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. tah.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Um, If you've joined us before, you know who I am, Chris Burkett, I teach here uh, uh, at at Ashland University, uh, co-chair of the Master of Arts program in American history and government. And uh, we are doing a, a series of webinars this year um landmark supreme court cases we've had some really great conversations uh, about uh, court cases so far in our webinars i'm sure today will be no different but the point of these webinars again just in case you're joining us for the first time is to pull together some some thoughtful uh, scholars who who teach this and, and 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 research it and write about it and these things and um and have a conversation an interesting hopefully enlightening conversation enlightening conversation uh, about uh, some important Supreme Court cases. Uh, as always, please feel free to submit questions in the chat box. If you don't mind, make sure that you send them to all participants. You can just change that with a drop down box, submit your questions to all participants, and we'll, we'll try to get through as many of those as possible. In the next week, you'll receive a, a, an email with a link that you can uh, use to request a certificate of participation and the link will also give you um, access to an archived video and audio from today's program so uh, today we're talking about the uh, university of california regents v back which was decided in uh, 1978 am i pronouncing that correct i've always just said back baki
0: yeah uh, baki thanks baki yeah
1: thought i might as well get that over with at the beginning because i knew somebody <laughs> would correct me. Sooner. so uh baki 1978 and uh we have joining us this morning Uh, Peter Myers at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire, Uh, David Alvis at at Wofford College, and we hope at some point Scott Yenner of Boise State University will join us as well. So thanks, Pete and and David, for being here um, on a Saturday morning. My pleasure. Thank you very Um, much. Yep. This is a uh, I, I find this decision extraordinarily complicated (laughs) this may be the most complicated uh, decision uh, by at least a little bit uh, of all the cases we've looked at in part because there are so many opinions in the case and I I thought maybe what we could do at the beginning is uh, if, if you two don't mind walking us through maybe some of the background of the case and also a little bit about how you know how do we follow what, what, all, what do all of these opinions mean? And, and some of them seem to offset each other. And then ultimately, in the course of our conversation, uh, of course, I'd like to talk about sort of the aftermath of the consequences. What is the real outcome of this case in light of the fact that there are so many uh, concurring and concurring in part and dissenting opinions? Um, so, Heather, if you want to start us off by maybe helping yeah, us
2: approach I- this. Yeah, I can just jump in on kind of with a little bit of the of the background of the story. So the um, so the the case, uh, the case here involves the uh, UC Davis uh, Medical School, um, which, uh, as you can re- see from reading from the opinion of the court, uh, had a what you what you could call an affirmative action program um, in which um, out of the hundred slots that um, of Potentially, accept uh, uh, that medical school applicants could compete for. 16 were set aside for um, uh, for minority for minority applicants, uh, and they had a um uh, uh, they they had a different criteria for the minority applicants. So the majority for the um, for the 86 slots, right? You could be automatically rejected if you didn't have a 2.5 uh, GPA. And, um, uh, and there were some other um, disqualifying uh, uh, criteria in, the, in those 86 slots, but in the 14 slots, they dropped those disqualifying criteria. And then also too, what's most important in the cases is that the, in the 16 slots, um, these 16 slots, those applicants, those minority applicants did not compete against the general applicants uh, in the, um, uh, uh, among the 86 students so the the applicant in this particular uh, so these these programs had arisen because of uh, particularly because of the drive among um, undergraduate institutions as well as graduate institutions like in medical and law school uh, to recruit more uh, minority students and there had been actually a very very low percentage in relationship to the population of minority students in medical school and law school and also too especially in a lot of the undergraduate institutions um, you know throughout the country but also particularly on the west coast so the um so this this program had driven had had been part of a of a general campaign uh, especially on the west coast to attract more um, uh, minority students and the um, the applicant in this particular case is alan bachy and he is um, he he was born in 1940, um, and he's applying for medical school in 1972. So he's he's a good bit older than the uh, your average applicant. Uh, he was 32 years old at the time, and he had actually been a very successful engineer working for NASA and um, a, a number of uh, very in a number of very prominent roles. Uh, and as you can see from his MCAT scores uh, and his GPA, he was a very, very, very well-qualified applicant. So anyway, he applies to UC Davis Medical School. He uh, he gets rejected the first time that he applies. Now the first time he applied, he actually applied late. Um, so he sought legal counsel, and they, it was rec- him. I'm sorry, he had actually talked to the law uh, to the medical school. Uh, the medical school said, "Well, you know, try the early application process." So then he tried, um, he, he tried um, early admissions, and was also uh, rejected, despite the fact that he was a very, very well-qualified uh, candidate. And you, as you can see, he scored very highly in that in that process for for applications. So following that, he seeks legal counsel and then uh, sues. Um, that uh, the, uh, sues the uh, university uh, for uh, racial discrimination. And he actually he ends up in in lower court in the state of California. He wins his case in lower court, and then uh, the case is appealed to the California Supreme Court and he wins uh, his case uh, in the California Supreme Court. And just to last couple of things in terms of the background, uh, there had been a an important question that came up in those cases in the state court and that was was he going to sue under title six of the um, so, uh, sorry of the 1964 civil rights act which prohibits discrimination against any um a person based on race uh for any institution receiving federal funding or was he going to argue that the race conscious admissions process at UC Davis uh, was illegal, uh, was uh, unconstitutional uh, violation of his rights under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And the California Supreme Court really focused on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and therefore um, declared that the uh, UC Davis program uh, was in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. So that's as much of of the background as I'm Familiar with in the case, maybe Pete can fill in some other details.
0: That, that seems that seems to seems be a to pretty pretty uh, pretty, uh, pretty complete, complete discussion, discussion of, the, of the, the, the the facts of the case of the context of it. Uh, uh, just I mean a couple maybe of points to add right on the end of the large points you were making about the. Uh, the constitutional, about the legal claims that uh, that Baki is making that are in dispute here. and then uh, and then maybe a tiny amendment to the or not amendment, a tiny addition to the to the facts of the case. You know as as uh, as David says, it's what's at issue here. Are two things: our federal statutory law. Actually, three, but we're going to leave aside the California Constitution uh, uh, for our purposes. Two things: federal statutory law, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, and the Equal Protection Clause um, of the of the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868. And so, the the case, the Bakke case, is so interesting because it um, it it brings back to the surface, but in a whole new context, a debate that, uh, that took place among the people who were framing the 14th Amendment about whether the 14th Amendment is to be understood as a plain and simple non-discrimination mandate um, in the language that Justice Harlan would put in it um, in uh, in the in the Plessy ruling in uh, in Harlan's Plessy dissent, whether whether the equal protection clause mandates colorblindness, or another way to say that is whether the equal protection clause simply forbids uh, the state from using any kind of race classification classification by race or color, for any reason. Um, that's one possibility. Or on the other hand, does the Equal Protection Clause permit some kinds of race classifications and not others? Um, and, uh, and as to which are permitted and which not permitted, it more or less leaves it up to judges to decide which ones are reasonable and which unreasonable. those That's a broad way of stating What's the what's at issue regarding the equal protection clause? The the Civil Rights Act um, says in the operative section exactly this. I, uh, I I copied and pasted it so we could so we could have it. Um, this is in Title Six, uh, and it has to do with uh, with federal funding of programs. And it reads as follows, no person in the United States shall on ground of race, color, or national origin be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And by the 1970s, that applies to virtually all even by the 70s, applies to virtually all uh, all, all state uh, universities, and so the University of California Davis is subject to the the Title VI restriction of the Civil Rights Act, which contains this very strong. So it seems on its face, anyway, this very strong anti-discrimination provision, which uh, does well. Yeah, maybe I'll just I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Um, the only the only little tiny thing I was going to add to the facts of the case is that Baki sued twice, or not? No, I'm sorry, he didn't sue twice. He applied twice, uh, and he was rejected the first time. Uh, and it seems he wrote a letter to the UC Davis uh, administration, to the med school administrators, uh, complaining, and alleging more or less what he would come to allege uh, a year later in this in this lawsuit. Um, and it seems that his allegation, at least with the, uh, I think it was the dean of the med school uh, who was who was a participant in the admissions process, it seems that the letter of complaint didn't do him any good. Um, he got the, he got the, there was a, there was a component of the application that had to do with uh, with an interview score, and his lowest interview score came from the 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 dean to whom he had complained about this, and so uh, uh, and so apparently uh, the university was um, well no I, I, let's uh, let's not draw any inferences from that uh, let's just let's let that let's let that stand okay that's okay. Uh, that's what I've got to add for the for the for the context
1: that's great so the Supreme Court and its in, the, in, um, in its final opinion, or in, in trying to arrive at opinion, if I'm following correctly, this is all really interesting, was looking more at the 14th Amendment, but it was really, Pete, as you put it, an, an issue of how to interpret the language of the 14th Amendment as a broad or, or as, a, as a clear, as you put it plain and simple, uh, non-discrimination mandate, or does it leave some wiggle room um, that, that there can be some discrimination in certain areas. That's so, so, so this is um, so the case in that sense is really the courts kind of divided over the interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment, if I'm following correctly, or
0: it's or no. Yeah, it's it's divided over that, um, and it's divided in part over whether the Fourteenth is is pertinent at all, um, but the. As as David said, as you said right off the bat, it's a very complicated case, and it's complicated in uh, in several different ways. But um, the, the 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 really interesting thing, I guess, I mean, the Baki is kind of the signal post civil rights era case, in a sense, um, because. The 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 substantive question that comes up in Bakke concerns a new kind of race classification. From Alan Bakke's point of view, it would be called maybe a new kind of of, uh, of race discrimination. I mean, previously, you know, the you the courts had to deal with pretty much just the old-fashioned kind of of race discrimination, which for present purposes we could say is you know, is is essentially just anti-black or anti-minority discrimination, right? Uh, and uh, And the court finds its way to the position that in all of those kinds of cases, such discrimination is unconstitutional. But after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, after the Civil Rights era, really, now you get this issue of, um, of, of of remedies for race discrimination coming into play. And that raises the possibility of a new kind of discrimination, remedial race classifications, as opposed to ones that are discriminatory in the old-fashioned kind of way. Um, and uh, And that's where the that's where the substantive complication arises. the The other kind of complication is just a legal one. The, the Some of the justices in the ruling think that you really should, as a matter of judicial propriety, you should only reach a constitutional question. If you can't decide it based on a statutory interpretation, so four of the justices thought that the Civil Rights Act decides it, and so there's no reason to take up the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, but five of the of the justices thought that uh, the Civil Rights Act by itself doesn't decide it, and so we do need to talk about the, about the meaning of the 14th Amendment, or, or rather, they, they just merged the Civil Rights Act into the 14th and said the two things mean the same thing, so we're going to decide based on, the, based on the Equal Protection Clause, uh, and there was some disagreement even among the five as to how you read the Equal Protection Clause.
2: And, and also to help kind of make sense too out of how the court frames that in, in their own language. Um, so one of the issues that's at stake here for how you're going to review this program at UC Davis is that the, the court can apply the what's known as the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It can apply it in one of three ways and looking at a program of this nature that has um some uh racial classifications it can either apply the standard of what is known as strict scrutiny whereby the court puts really the burden of the proof on the uh state institution to establish one what is a what their compelling state interest is for having a racial classification you know is there is there a compelling state reason for doing this and number two is, is the program very narrowly tailored towards that legitimate and compelling state interest? So that's that's known as strict scrutiny. And if the court chooses that as its criteria, then there's going to be a very heavy burden on UC Davis to prove that their program is not only uh, answers a compelling need uh, for racial classifications, but also that the program has a lot of you know evidence that this is the most uh, uh, narrowly tailored way of achieving that um, and that there wasn't any other alternative so that would put a very heavy burden on them so that if, if it chooses strict scrutiny that would be the criteria then there's what might be known as intermediate level of scrutiny which has never been clearly defined, but it would allow the state a a little bit more deference to the state. You know, the state might probably uh, give them more room uh, to choose among a variety of programs and therefore um, be less critical of their uh, method of of achieving this compelling state interest. And then the third criteria is what's sometimes called the rational basis test. Uh, It's the lowest level of scrutiny and that is that the court accepts that the state has a legitimate interest in doing this and would be and, and as long as the state said look you know there's some rational connection between what we're doing and the goal that we're attempting to achieve the court says fine so the there the court does not put much of a burden on the plaintiff or the state in this case um, to prove that they that that, that, that this program was absolutely necessary and and very carefully tailored. Uh, that would be the lowest basis. So that's the big issue they have to decide in this case, is what level of scrutiny are they going to approach the um, program at UC Davis with?
1: David, so now help me understand which which basis the court apply. Which, maybe, <laughs> the yeah, road, maybe I can...
2: <laughs> the, that is the most unclear element of the case is what what criteria are they actually employing, right? So <laughs> that turns out to be the big argument in the case among those who are in the majority. So is as, um, as far as I read it, right? As far as I understand Powell's somewhat circuitous um, uh, argument uh, in the majority opinion. PAL believes Powell believes that he is applying strict scrutiny to UC Davis. <laughs> that is, he is that, you know, UC Davis his argument right, so so the decision right by Powell is look, he decides he um, he ultimately affirms the California uh, Supreme Court ruling in part. And the part that he affirms is this is a, um, what you might call a, a, this the, you, the use of these set-asides, or what, in a more derogatory way, you might label as quotas, these 16 quotas. His argument is, is that, look, they're, they're, this, UC Davis has not proven, A, that they are remedying some past wrong, right, that, that the state is guilty of. Uh, in terms of discrimination, so they haven't really proven that, and they haven't proven that this these set asides are the most narrowly tailored way of achieving right things that UC Davis does have a compelling interest in, and that is a compelling state interest in, and that is achieving a diverse classroom. So his his argument is: look, it's fine to achieve, uh, try to achieve a diverse class, right? But this. The way that you're doing this, right, is not um, is uh, there's there's no evidence, right, that you've clearly connected the program, the 16 set asides this kind of racial quota, with the um, what you're attempting to achieve in terms of the way that you're forming your medical school students. So he thinks that he's applying strict scrutiny. Now, th- 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 that's complicated by the fact that almost the entire remainder of his majority. Right, the other four four justices in this case write a concurrence where they say, "Well, no, no, that's not the standard we're applying in this case." So the so the majority opinion is saying we're we're applying strict scrutiny. All the other signers of that majority opinion write a concurring opinion where they say that's not the standard uh, of uh, evaluation that we're employing. Rather, they say their argument is. We're employing what you might call an intermediate level of scrutiny. We're not saying we're the the, the concurrence says look, it is fine to have racial classifications as long as you don't have racial, racial classifications that stigmatize people, and so they are are trying to find an alternative grounds right for agreeing with Powell that is not the same thing as Powell is saying. So that's why this case really is kind of, is very complicated. They actually, the majority is actually disagreeing with each other over what kind of scrutiny they're applying in this case. Hopefully some questions will help uh, us uh, uh, flesh that out a little bit.
1: Yeah, but no, that actually helps, David. That makes it a little clearer in my mind, at least here's how I'm thinking about it now. So Powell, strict scrutiny. Uh, the other four concurring justices apply a more intermediate level. I, I really like the way you put that. But then back to the question of their interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, they're taking the more uh, broad interpretation of that that says some discrimination is allowable even under the Equal Protection Clause.
0: Can, yes. can, I, can I jump in to, please, please, yeah. To, to, yeah, let me say a, a bit more about the um, – I guess the – the deeper background in which this whole idea of uh, of strict scrutiny arises, um, at, at least in the case of in cases involving um, this kind of race or color kind of classification, um, for I, it, for a lot of the teachers this language is going to be familiar, but for some maybe it's not this language of constitutional law and classifications and levels of scrutiny and all of that. So maybe maybe it helps to clarify that a little bit. The you know, back to the back to the Fourteenth Amendment for a second. the Equal Protection Clause says no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, right? So it raises this question, what what? Among the questions it raises, What does this equality mean? this this equality under the law? that you know the general idea, the general sense would be, the law is to treat people equally, okay? Um, Well, from there arises in court cases uh, the problem of classifications. Laws classify people by one or another identifying characteristic, um, and they assign differential benefits, differential rights, burdens, and so forth in accordance with those, uh, those identifying characteristics. So to take a simple example, Uh, laws classify people by age. You know, I mean, if you're above the age of 16, you can't get a driver's license. If you're above a certain age and you've worked a while, you qualify for Social Security benefits. If not, you don't. If you're above a certain age, you got the right to vote and not and so forth. So age is one kind of classification. You can think of a whole bunch of others, right, that get written into the law. Now, does the 14th Amendment say... That does the Equal Protection Clause mean that all such classifications are now rendered unconstitutional when the state uh, tries to write and enforce them in in law? And the answer to that cannot be yes. I mean, that would be contrary to common sense. You don't have lawsuits arising uh, to uh, to try to vindicate the right of four-year-olds to vote, you know, in in, in state elections. So it's it's clear that some kinds of classifications are perfectly reasonable and are undisturbed by the fourteenth. So then you have to figure out what kinds of classifications are not permissible and what kinds are. And the answer to that proves to be a very complicated area in, in constitutional law. But for us, you know, for our purposes, it, it can be simplified. The the idea is that. Look, when you go back and understand why the 14th found its way into the Constitution to begin with, it clearly has to do with a race problem. And so whatever else it says about other kinds of classifications, classifications by sex or gender and so forth, whatever it, however it deals with those, um, the idea is that it treats race classifications as particularly problematic, poisonous, you might say, given the 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 history of race relations in the U.S. And so the way the court comes to reason about this in the 20th century, at least, <clears throat> mid-20th century onward, is that it starts to treat race classifications as the, the, the legal language is inherently suspect. And so this is a point David alluded to when he said it kind of, it reverses a presumption that the law is okay, that, in other words, so now the Supreme Court says, okay, you know, the 14th says we should flag race classifications as being especially troublesome, and so when a case comes up in which somebody alleges that their their equality rights under the 14th, have been violated because of their race or color, so that a law or or, or something a statute uh, involves a race classification. Uh, the court says we're going to treat that classification with um, a very high degree of suspicion. And that's what the that's what the strict scrutiny thing is about. And so we're not going to tell the state, that you absolutely may not, under any circumstances, employ a race or color classification. But we are going to tell the state, if you do, then you're going to have to justify it. It's going to have to pass an unusually difficult test, this, uh, it's going to, which means two things, as, just as David said. You're going to have to show that you have an unusually powerful interest. The language comes to be compelling state interest. You know, you have to show that you that this is an overriding necessity to use this kind of classification, and you have to show that you're using the race classification only to the minimal degree required to achieve your achieve your interests. So that's the the compelling state interest and in the and the narrow tailoring requirement. That uh, that as uh, as David again says, you know Justice Lewis Powell, who's kind of on an island in some ways in uh, in writing for the court, the what turns out to be the 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 opinion for the court in Bakke says we need to employ the strict scrutiny standard. We need to treat any kind of race classification, irrespective of purpose, as inherently suspect so it triggers this higher level of scrutiny, so we impose this more difficult test, and we see, uh, just as David said, that the UC Davis uh, passes one part and fails the other part. The Powell is persuaded that one out of the four state interests that the UC Davis claimed it was trying to achieve by this policy, one out of the four um uh, in Powell's estimation, did in fact qualify as a compelling interest, the uh, the interest in educational diversity, um, but it did not. But the policy did not pass the the narrow tailoring standard. You could have achieved it by a less um, race focused means, is what uh, is what Justice Powell is arguing here, and how that works is another interesting part. But I don't want to I don't want to go on too long. So maybe we can get to that down the road.
1: Well, this may this may uh, lead us um, to a question. Of, uh, it may be it may be answering in part a question that um, let's see uh, uh, let's see uh, whose question was it? I think Larry uh, Larry asked a, uh, Larry sent a, a question. In reading the opinion of this case, he says I came across the notion that the equal protection clause of the Fourteenth Amendment needed to be rehabilitated following the Slaughterhouse cases. Yes, if somebody can comment on that, is that is that tied to, is this is the is the is the rehabilitation of the Fourteenth tied to the need discovery of the need to re, re, re uh, reevaluate how the Fourteenth uh, Equal Protection Clause? I is would
0: I would I'd be interested in what David says, but I, I would say no. That I mean, the Slaughterhouse cases, what needs to be rehabilitated after the Slaughterhouse cases is a different part of the Fourteenth. Uh, section one contains really four important clauses, I, I guess, but uh, but but three of them are usually counted, given some priority in constitutional law. They are the privileges or immunities clause, uh, the due process clause, the equal protection clause, and the one that's really at issue in the slaughterhouse cases is the privileges or immunities clause, which the, to which the court attaches a very very narrow reading to the effect that the privileges or immunities clause in the 14th really doesn't protect any rights of United States citizens that weren't already protected prior to the 14th Amendment. So it essentially nullified that clause. And Justice Thomas, uh, mainly Justice Thomas in the present day, is trying to rehabilitate that clause some, um, but that's a little different part of the story. Even in the slaughterhouse cases, the the, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the Fourteenth Amendment is largely about race. It's largely about correcting. Uh, correcting may not be the right word. Preventing race injustice. I guess correcting it would be okay at the, at the state level. So in that way, it didn't really say anything that needed to be rehabilitated um, by cases like, like Baki.
2: Part of the, a little bit of the irony of this case is, is that the very conservative reading of the 14th Amendment, uh, you know, shortly after the, the passage of these amendments by the court, right, But uh, in the civil rights cases and in the um, uh, slaughterhouse cases, um, the, the, you know, those opinions back then had really narrowed the meaning of the 14th Amendment to say, look, the 14th Amendment is not about protecting everybody. It's about... It's about fixing the problem of slavery. It's, it's a race, it, it has a narrow application uh, uh, to fixing uh, race issues, right, following slavery. And the, it, when you get to this case, right, the argument is no, but uh, by, by the, now the argument by the conservatives on the court is no, the Fourteenth Amendment is about protecting everyone, right? Not it's not limited to a narrow racial group. Whereas the left, on the the more left-wing or progressive side of the court here, is arguing, no, 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 the Fourteenth Amendment and also to the uh, uh, Civil Rights Acts, right, were narrowly focused on a particular racial group, right? So that um, you know. It, it, it uh it, it, you know uh, whites right majority whites cannot appeal either to the civil rights act or to the 14th amendment um as an argument for uh for equal protection so there's a certain irony to that to that the um also too another case that's really this interesting that's in the background of this right is thinking about that famous decision of plessy v ferguson right um you know our, in 1954 brown versus board of education had overruled plessy v. ferguson it overruled the standard that separate but equal was an, a legitimate interpretation of the equal protection clause and so now the the interesting issue right here is okay if separate but equal is is uh, unconstitutional under the equal protection clause does the Equal Protection Clause apply uh, to both races, right? And the famous dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson had argued, our Constitution is colorblind. And the dissenters in this case are arguing that's what that's what they appeal to, is that dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson that says, look, our Constitution is colorblind, right? It cannot tolerate right, right, racial classifications. And the progressive side of the court is ultimately saying we can't, a colorblind constitution is, a, is not a reality. The reality is we live in a world, right, where, you know, you have the de facto, uh, de facto effects of uh, segregation. And uh, in, in years of that, right, all the way back uh, to the founding era. And the only way to achieve equality, right, is through self-conscious racial classifications. Uh, That is, uh, you have to remedy the past effects in order for everyone to be made equal. So, in some ways, right, that thinking about Plessy v. Ferguson here is interesting, because we always think Plessy v. Ferguson, in in terms of race, is, you know, this uh, uh, really bad decision, because it was this really race-conscious decision. We tend to agree, you know, with the argument of the dissent, right, you need a colorblind constitution. Well, now the argument whether or not a colorblind constitution is a good thing, right, is now the subject uh, of debate in this in this particular case. And the progressives on the court are arguing this is not good. This is not good for equality. And you hear you have the conservatives making the case for the colorblind constitution.
1: I think answer uh, one of Billy's questions in part where he asked if this uh <clears throat> if this is a uh, the decision in this case is a move away from uh, the Plessy uh, decision, but it but it but it but it's in, in, it's a move. It seems like it's a it's a move away from uh, the majority opinion in Plessy, but relying on Harlan's dissent in Plessy. But also, David, if I'm following you correctly, would you say this is an attempt to? Maybe I'm putting this the wrong way. It's not an attempt to sort of roll back some of the open-ended. Uh, Consequences of the Brown case, the Brown v. Board of Education decision, is is this an attempt to clarify Uh, some of the some of the loose ends that come out of Brown, or no?
2: I mean, I think it is in some ways, right? That is, it has to move away from the position of formal equality and towards a another notion of equality, something like uh, something approximating a little bit more equality of results. Right. um the, uh and so I I, I mean uh, um, actually Justice Brennan right not uh, who is uh the primary author really of the concurrence here in this case um who argues you know that we should be we should not exercise strict scrutiny we shouldn't be so uh rigid in our um uh analysis uh, in, in 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 our review of UC Davis's um uh, uh, racial classifications in their admissions process here. Uh, he actually argues uh, in another, uh, in another con- uh, case, he just makes it very explicit. A colorblind constitution is an impossibility. Right. Um, we live in a real world where we have the real effects of past discrimination and if you um, employ the standard of a colorblind constitution, you'll never rect. Rectify the inequalities uh, that exist in terms of race. So he's quite explicit, right, of rejecting that notion of, of formal equality that was argued uh, in the dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. A colorblind constitution uh, is not a possibility. And also, too, Blackman, uh, Justice Blackman, in one of his memos during the correspondence between the justices in this case wrote about the dissent that makes that argument for the colorblind constitution, Blackman said, look, we don't live, the The dissent's opinion would be fine if we lived in an ideal world, but we live in a real world. And in the real world, there are, we, we have to deal with the past effects of invidious discrimination. And so that the colorblind constitution is just not a possibility for
1: us. That's That's really interesting. We have a really good question from, I think, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, uh, Kina Cook, uh, which I want to get to in a second, but 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 because we're kind of on this, Larry also submitted a question, um, or I'm sorry, Billy uh, submitted a question about uh, um, the Civil Rights Act. Um, not sh- quite sure how to put this in light of all the stuff I'm learning <laughs> in a very short amount of time here from YouTube. But the Civil Rights Act, it seems as though uh, was pretty clearly uh, passed to protect the rights of minorities, or at least that was the that was the original intent. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just throwing a theory. That's a, out. That's a
2: great question.
1: It seems as though, and so this, I'm building off the the, the, the sort of uh, as uh, Billy puts it, in another question, sort of the splicing use of the of the 14th Amendment. Was it meant to provide equal protection for all, or was it more? Immediately directed at protecting the uh, the, the rights of minorities. It seems as though the the civil right Title six of the Civil Rights Act was I mean if you look at the legislative history pretty clearly directed primarily at at, at protecting the rights of minorities and not and was not uh, initially intended to uh, provide a kind of colorblind uh, protection of 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 the rights of everybody when it came to. Uh, These sorts of questions that we're dealing with in this case. So, if that's true, there's a question in here somewhere, I guess. If that's true, does that help us explain? Does that help us understand why the Supreme Court turns more to the Fourteenth Amendment as the as the um, as the standard they're looking to, rather than the rather than Title VI of the of the Civil Rights Act?
0: Well, I a couple of things. Um... I'm not sure that is true as a reading okay, of good. the as a reading of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, I think uh, the the Title VI provision that is the one specifically in question in um, the Bakke case uh, is is pretty emphatic uh, that in the the anti-discrimination language that it uses that uh, you know once again that you know no Person shall be excluded, denied benefits, subjected to discrimination. Period. Person is not racialized. Person means anybody could be subject to uh, to discrimination and could have a claim under the under the law. You know. So if you just read it based on the the plain facial language, it seems it's an anti discrimination provision, and that does seem to be the the legislative intention there were of course it was not uncontroversial and in the course of the debate in congress opponents of the civil rights act charged this is going to result in quotas this is going to result in race balancing for remedial purposes and the supporters of the bill denied it the supporters of the bill said no this is an anti-discrimination provision uh, of course it was quickly interpreted by uh, uh, by federal bureaucratic agencies as well as courts um, in a different way in a, in a non- colorblind way but the but the legislative intent seems to accord with the language which really is colorblind the the bigger question here though I mean it, it is a good question is the the bigger question applies to the question of how you read the 14th too. You know, what do these laws permit and what do they prohibit? And the question all along that really becomes a live question only after Brown, really only, only you know, w- with the advent of the civil rights era um, is when the question of remedies comes up. To some extent that's present in the, in the near aftermath of the Civil War, but only to a, a really quite limited extent. Um and so the the question is do we interpret these laws and you could throw in the brown ruling along with it as though the principle informing them is anti-discrimination the discrimination by race or color is wrong period for any reason you know directed against anybody right that's one possibility uh, and the other possibility is that the principle in brown the principle informing brown informing the civil rights act I guess to some extent informing the fourteenth, is that it was all of these were attempts to create to correct a specific problem. Uh, and to put it kind of bluntly, the specific problem was anti-black discrimination or or white supremacy. And so take your pick. Um, is the principle of the law anti-discrimination or is in a generalized way, or is the principle of the law anti-subordination? Um, which means that remedial attempts to lift up the victims of subordination would be okay even if they employed race classifications. Um, But on the other reading, on the anti-discrimination reading, remedial attempts, so far as they employed race classifications um, in in a blunt way, would not be permissible, you know and And Brown v Board doesn't enact Justice Harlan's dissent in in Plessy. You know, Brown v Board says that public school segregation uh, by race or color is wrong because and that seems to mean so far as, it has harmful effects. You know it produces this feeling of inferiority that the like social life science life. studies tells. Yeah, yeah, so which leaves open the possibility that a race classification that didn't have that kind of harmful effect um, would be okay. And that's what the the they're partly concurring and partly dissenting in Baki, the the faction led by by justice brennan and uh, and and Justice Thurgood Marshall. That's what they're saying, that, that really the important distinction here is between benign kinds of race classification, kinds that are, that are an intention to remedy, um, versus invidious kinds, which, which stigmatize, which do harm in the old-fashioned kind of way, and the law prohibits only the latter. And so, what the UC Davis is trying to do is not to stigmatize Alan Bakke, is not to identify him as a member of a disfavored class. Um, it's trying to remedy a history of discrimination. This is their reading of it, anyway. And uh, and therefore, it would be it would be constitutional. One last thing, the interesting thing, another interesting thing here is that uh, these. Uh, this faction, the four led by Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall, are making the point that this is all about remedying a history of, of disadvantage, of race discrimination. Um, and Justice Powell says that that, well, that's not the permissible purpose of the law. Powell says it's promoting diversity. These are commonly... Um, conflated and confused rationales for affirmative action programs, race classification programs. But the diversity rationale rests on a whole different principle and has very different implications from the from the remedial rationale. Powell says it's diversity. That's the ground on which this, this policy can stand, or policies like it, anyway, can stand. And uh, and Brennan et al say no. It's it's anti. It's 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 remedial. It's it's the remedy of discrimination.
1: Wow. Well, that's 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 very helpful. That, that's very that helps understand the again the, the larger framework that they're working in here. It's very interesting. So I, I do want to ask uh, Kina's question, which I think is a really good one, an interesting one. Um, if UC Davis had not reduced the requirements for minority e students, but still maintained the 16 set asides, but had required they meet the same threshold as the other applicants would, the scrutiny had been the same under the 14th Amendment. That's,
2: That's an interesting question. That's a so, very interesting. So you, question. yeah, so okay, so you ha- you're going to keep the 16 set asides, right? But they but they're going to compete. Well, the thing is, well, they can't compete, right, against the other applicants if you have sixteen set-asides, right? So let's see. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I, I get I get though where you're going, that is yeah. what if you what if you had sixteen set asides with the same requirements, right? Yeah. With the let's say with the same requirements as the as the general, but only they competed against each other uh, and not against the general
1: pool right right, right. Did, yeah. but so did 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 you see davis lower the requirements yeah they they, they, they did, dropped right? they dropped the two,
2: the 25 gpa requirement they they okay. dropped okay okay um, and as you can see right there's a just an enormous disparity right between your average um, applicant in the general admission pool and the uh, and the special admissions Program yeah. uh, in terms of the MCAT scores. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Uh, if you look at, all right. That's a tough question. That is a tough question. You know, <laughs> I, I would I would point out. You know, that, uh, 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 I believe Billy asked a question too about a case that had come up not too long ago. Uh, well, two thousand well, two thousand sixteen um, in Fisher versus uh, University of Texas. Right. So, all right. So. University of Texas has a program for its law school, where you have a general admission pool where you compete against everybody. But if you don't get accepted to that, you can compete in a special admissions pool, which race is one of the factors, right? Uh, so race is one of the factor, but then also two. Most of the factors that are in the general admissions process are also in the special admission process, talent, ability, um, uh, academic uh, academic performance. And in that case, the court um, did review it, um, uh, I believe they reviewed it under a strict scrutiny standard and found that the um, Texas program, um, because it did not make the racial class classification and the special admissions process the sole criteria, um, it ended up uh, uh, passing uh, uh, their test, right, under the Equal Protection Clause. So it does appear that Powell's argument that as long as you don't make racial classification the sole criteria, or the predominant I I should add or the predominant criteria because there's another case called from 2003 called Gratz v Bollinger where University of Michigan had given minority applicants um, a 20 point plus score Um, and just to give you a perspective on how much that meant if you had a perfect MCAT that was only 12 points but if you had the right racial classification you got 20 points and there they said okay that's too much so, as long as you don't make it the sole criteria or the, the predominant criteria, um, it looks like the court would, in, uh, the court's jurisprudence does look like it, it will allow even for a special admission process, right? Um, as long as racial the racial classification is not the sole criteria. I don't know what do you well, think? But,
0: but, but, well, but
1: just quick, can, can I ask just really quickly, why can't yeah. racial, uh, the racial criteria be Either much or the sole, uh, hmm. the sole factor is that because, is that is that a consequence of that interpretation of Brown that it has a, um, a, 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 what was the word? Well,
2: yeah, that's Powell, I, No, that's I think Powell's interpretation of the Fourteenth oh. Amendment. Okay. Is, is that once you make that the the sole criteria, you violated the uh, you vi- you you've created an invidious uh, classification um, that can't survive scrutiny under the
0: equal protection. Yeah, can I can I jump in please. on that? Yeah, I mean, please. yeah, I think Powell's reasoning is that when you would you make race the sole classification, you're treating people as members of a group and assigning rights to them based on their group status rather than their individual personhood, and that's that's the key violation that the Fourteenth Amendment in Powell's reading. Uh, I mean, in anybody's reading, really, the for the 14th, the language of the 14th refers to persons, and it assigns individual, it assigns rights to persons, in their individual status, uh, and so that's why the 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 quota that uh, UC Davis used he judged to be unconstitutional because it doesn't give every applicant. This is this is the distinction he draws between the UC Davis program and the Harvard program, which he approved of. Uh, is that the Harvard program gives an individualized consideration to all applicants, uh, and the UC Davis program did not. And so, for my two cents worth on on Keena's question is that, um, I mean. David answered the question with reference to the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in a number of cases in general. Um, I would answer it, I guess, with specific reference to Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke. Um, I would answer it more simply. uh, would the scrutiny have been the same under the 14th if they didn't reduce the admissions requirements for the special admittees? My answer is, yeah, it would have been. It would have been strict scrutiny. You would have had to judge it um, by the strict scrutiny standard in just the same way, and that's the and that's the reason because you still would have had a situation in which a guy like Alan Baki. Is being excluded from competing with the 16 for those 16 spots for one and only one reason, and that is that he's the he's the wrong color. And Powell's argument is that's a that's a violation of the Constitution because it violates the uh, the, the guarantee of an individualized or or personalized um, review.
1: In this particular case, the decision is Baki should be admitted but because of the additional concurring views that are added into it, the court establishes the precedent that there can be policies uh, in, uh, where, where, where uh, racial distinctions are admissible um, in other things. So that's a, that's a, that seems to me to be the real takeaway from this, which means it's still really vague in a certain sense, right? But in this case, no. In, in other cases, we can, we, we can kind of envision, uh, grounds to justify these these sorts of policies is that is that what I should take away? From
0: this that? this is very yeah I mean this is very <laughs> interesting that you know, Justice Justice Powell is um, he seems to be all alone here I mean there there are points on which you can find agreement with uh, members of the of either of the the two factions of four um, but but on this one he seems to be just. Um, just just entirely alone that that it, that is he's maintaining that there's a meaningful difference between a quota on the one hand and the use of a race or color classification among a range of other factors. And that's a, you know, you can see that there's that there is such a difference. They're not exactly the same thing. but, Every one of the all of both the other major opinions, let's put it that way, um, are making the point that that is not a meaningful distinction. Uh, that that and the reason it's not a meaningful distinction is that even if you have a circumstance in which there's an individualized consideration that is every candidate competes against every other candidate for every spot uh, in an, in a given admissions class, still, if you are using race or color as a criterion. Um, In principle, that at least means, and probably in practice it means every once in a while, that there are going to be two candidates who are indistinguishable, or at least two candidates who are on a plane of equality, one with another, in all the other areas of qualification, except one is a different color from the other, and so that will be the reason that somebody gets excluded. There are gonna if you use race as a classification, there are gonna be cases in which somebody gets excluded uh, uh, based only on their their race or color. and uh, and I think actually all the other all the other eight agree with that, though they have different um, uh, interpretations of whether it's permissible or not.
1: The, so in light of that, does the, the way in which this case was decided make it almost inevitable that the Supreme Court is going to hear wave after wave of, of racial quota cases in the future, which, see, I mean, a wave over waves is an exaggeration, but we've seen it happen, right, since since Bakke. This mm-hmm. question has been before the court time after time, and it's almost as though what the court is saying here is... Um, can can uh, universities use affirmative action um, policies, uh, including racial quotas for admissions? And the answer is maybe. Um, we just kind of have to look at it on a case by case basis, and we'll let you know. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit,
2: but yeah, I mean that's that is one of the problem with these tests that the court uses, right? is you know when, 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 there's, when there's not somewhere where you can have a clear principled argument but rather have to employ something like a strict scrutiny test you know oftentimes you really just don't know if you're within the court's um, permissive scope right um, a- until you actually hear you have your case heard because you know the key criteria the, the, the essential thing on these programs right according to the court here is you, you can have a program that takes race into account, that uses, uses what you would call racial classifications, but it has to be the narrowly tailored, which means it has to be the least, um, uh, the least um, uh, intrusive means possible of using racial classifications to achieve something like diversity. Well, everybody's going to have an opinion about what is the least restrictive means, right? Or the least um, intrusive means of, of of using race. So, it, it what it inevitably means is that you're going to have uh, hundreds, uh, thousands of lawsuits, right? Arguing that's not the least restrictive, that's not the least restrictive, that's not narrowly tailored, right? And so, you inevitably you're going to it's just going to it's going to end up being almost handled on a case by case basis. And, and that's actually what you've seen. So, you know, even though the, the big cases, right, that, we, that people who teach constitutional law have heard of, uh, Grutter v. Bollinger, Gratz v. Bollinger, U- uh, Fisher versus University of Texas, there's uh, thousands and thousands of cases on the lower federal district level where district judges are reviewing these um, uh, challenges to admissions processes all, all the time. And you're never quite sure, you know, whether where you're at in terms of the whether or not your program fits the court's understanding of, of it being tailored. And it also depends on the composition of the court, right? So, uh, or what judge is hearing your case?
1: We have only uh, maybe 10 minutes left. Uh, it leads us to a series of questions that are all sort of connected to that question, or that that point that you're raising, David. Um, Larry asks about okay. It, it, after the Bakke decision? What are the the real day-to-day implications of this case? Um, uh, Billy asked, uh, will this decision apply to future rulings? Um, And then um, uh, Julie asked a similar question. Does the the decision in this case play a role in today's society? And another question uh, asked about the recent appointment of Gorsuch just a day or two ago, right? And whether we see cases involving affirmative action Um, in the future that might, that might rely on the Bakke decision. So I guess in general, what are your, what are your thoughts on um, um, sort of the, maybe the cases that follow and the development of these doctrines that come out of this case and and, and maybe the, the current view on these things and what role this decision might play in future decisions? I,
0: I yeah two well I was going to say two quick points but I don't know <laughs> I'm not sure they're going to be extremely <laughs> quick uh, in the nature of uh, nature of being a professor but uh, one is one can be quick at least and and that is that you know we've we've alluded to the fact that Justice Powell is kind of by himself that uh, you know that, that Powell decides in favor of Baki on 14th Amendment grounds. Um, and the four who are with him decide in favor of Baki on Civil Rights Act grounds. And the four against Baki decide uh, on equal protection grounds in favor of the UC Davis and they agree with Powell only to this extent that race can be a factor employed, right? Now, that means, one of the things that means is that the ruling, in a certain sense, is five to four in favor of Alan Baki. But in a different sense, it's really four to one to four uh, with, Powell, with Powell in the middle. And so there's a question down the road, since nobody else signs on to Lewis Powell's whole opinion as to what status this has, as a precedent. Um, Is Powell's opinion the authoritative opinion of the court or is it not? And that question gets answered, this we can say at least definitely and confidently, that question gets answered in Grutter versus Bollinger. In Grutter v. Bollinger, another sharply divided court but five justices now say that we're signing on to Lewis Powell's opinion in in Bakke. So that's so that's effective constitutional law now. Bakke's, or uh, Powell's opinion in Bakke becomes the majority opinion in in Grutter v. Bollinger. Um, with regard to the other kinds of implications, the more policy and law related implications this seems to me a point worth adding that we haven't quite touched on yet. Um, yeah, forgive me if this seems a little bit of a cynical way of putting it, but it is implicit in uh, in uh, the the ruling in Bakke, and it becomes a little more explicit, and it becomes very explicit in the Fisher v. Texas ruling that um, Powell's distinction between a hard and fast quota you know, or a numerical set-aside uh, as being unconstitutional on the one hand versus the use of race in a flexible way as an admissions criterion, that being okay on the other hand. Um, well, the cynical way of describing that is to is to say that, um, you know, the way that you satisfy the narrow tailoring requirement is don't use a quota, all right, But if you're university admissions um, personnel and you're interested in increasing your representation of selected minority groups, let's say historically underrepresented groups, you're going to have to think about your numbers in some way. right? You can't do that without thinking about the numbers. And so the, the, the message of Baki to university admissions officers is if you just... Disguise your intentions a bit in the use of uh, race and color classifications. You're going to be okay if you do it really overtly. Uh, Powell's language is a facial intent to discriminate. Facial means if you make it obvious, then we're going to strike it down. So be a little disguised about it. And this was the precise issue in Grutter. Um, the, The majority who upheld the University of Michigan's law school policy. Barbara Gruder was in the position of Alan Bakke. She was actually a little bit older as an applicant for law school, and she was kind of on the borderline with regard to her uh, her qualifications by the ordinary measures, and she gets denied admission. And so she brings suit because the university uses uses race or color as an admissions criterion, but it doesn't have a quota. Uh, And so uh, the court decides The majority of the court decides, okay, well, that's the decisive fact. The University of Michigan is not using a quota, so it satisfies the criterion in Bakke, so we're going to uphold the program. And the dissenters are saying that, well, really... Uh, this is a quota in disguise. I mean, this is a quota that's not a hard and fast number, but it's it's a ballpark range of of admissions numbers that they're actually sticking to very carefully and in a very in a very deliberate way. And so, functionally, it is a quota. Um, and so, the spirit of the thing really is not in conformity with the law. And that's the way. Uh, um, and and uh, and that's the way the dissenters reason about it. And I would I would suggest that this this kind of is the legacy of both Baki and Gruder taken together. That university administrators, by and large, really do want to uh, to to pump up the numbers with regard to the 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 promotion of diversity, which is a, a another of these these important things about Baki that we haven't talked about too much. Um, and so they really are interested in using race and color classifications for admissions purposes, um, and uh, and the court has invited them to be to obfuscate a little bit, and they've been perfectly happy to do that. And that's the way the that's that's the legacy on the level of policy of uh, uh, of of these rulings. I guess it wasn't so quick. It's amazing, though.
2: (laughs) And you also, you really, you create a lot of legal complications, both for the university side, right, and for the courts, right, with a decision like this. So a a decision is always somewhat problematic when both sides celebrate, right, the decision uh, because they can both (laughs) interpret it in a different way, and that's what happens after Baki. And so you're not really clear. What? Wait a minute. Are these programs problematic or are they okay? Well, there's now this sort of complex middle ground, and, and also too, if you think about it, right, the argument of the schools is one of the reasons that we need these uh, racial uh, quota, uh, some sort of uh, racial calculus, is in order to um, sort of restore the imbalance between um, uh, between uh, b- uh, between the races that's sort of a legacy of of. American politics and in, in history. well, the the problem is is that if you do that, right, then the argument would be that each few years, the problem should be remedied to a point where you're using the uh, the the racial uh, classification less and less each year because supposedly your program's working, right? There are more African American doctors, there are more uh, Hispanic lawyers. So the program should be working. Well, would that would mean that your program really needs to be reevaluated by uh, potentially by the court every few years to make sure that you're also dec- um, uh, uh, lessening your use of those are more na- by, uh, to sat- that you're satisfying the narrow tailoring requirement by lessening your use of those each few years. And in fact, um, in the in O'Connor's decision in Grutter v. Bollinger. Uh, She actually says, right, um, I anticipate that these programs would be gone in a course of 25 years, which is, I mean, in some ways what she's explaining is kind of the logical progression of this. Well now, you know, like with the University of, the Fisher versus University of Texas decision, the court actually said you have to come up with a way of reevaluating your uh, use of racial quotas or uh, your use of racial classifications every certain years and you have to go through all these details. Well, that's going to end up being litigated in court over and over again. And it's going to be in some ways a very complex uh, uh, issue um, in which there's not going to be a lot of clarity about exactly what the colleges can and cannot do uh, in their admissions process. And some have kind of tried to approach this by simply getting rid of some of their standardized requirements, like getting rid of the um, Mm -hmm. SAT uh, or the ACT and undergraduate admissions under the pretense that the, that those don't really predict academic success, but now the uh, and partly the argument has become, to, uh, it's a way to diversify your class without using SAT or ACT scores.
1: Well, um, g- gentlemen, we've, we've come to the end of our time together. That one just, this just flew by. Um, I, I've learned a lot from this. This actually, um, I feel like I've got a little bit better framework for how to think about the a lot better framework actually <laughs> about this case and I thank you both very much for that um, because it is a complicated case but but you've you've managed to somehow make it actually interesting so uh, <laughs> congratulations <laughs> thanks <laughs> but but seriously it's great to see you both and, and thanks for being here and uh, we'll hopefully get you uh, get you back for some uh, webinars next year um,
0: what's uh, the what's the theme next year.
1: Well, we're still we're still working on that, but uh, uh, right now it's it, 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 uh, Jeremy uh, uh, Gipton has been working on this, and we're we're thinking about something like a uh, crises in American history, great moments of crises, perhaps. Mm. So we're still we're still working through it, but um, but uh, I do appreciate your time and your thoughts. This is uh, this has been very helpful, and um, I'm always impressed with how how just how well you two think about things like this. So thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, and Chris. thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks. Thanks uh, for some great questions that helped the conversation along. Uh, I just remind you again, uh, if you're joining us, uh, look for the email uh, where you can request a certificate of participation. I uh, also uh, also invite you to, to check out our, uh, our, our courses that we offer as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, both of these fine gentlemen teach in that program and uh, So if you enjoyed the conversation today, you can can, uh, take a course with them and expect the same kind of um, deep, uh, thought-provoking discussions uh, in their courses. And then I'll just mention our final Saturday webinar of this series on uh, SCOTUS cases will be May 13th, and it'll be on the New Jersey versus TLO case, and we'll be joined by Eric Sands, of of, uh, Barry College and Jeff Sickinga, my colleague here at Ashland University. So hopefully I'll see you all then. Until then, take care. Thanks again.
0: Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.